You may be seated. As you're being seated, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And uh, as you turn there, I'll read for us verses 24 and 25. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 944. Page 944. Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. This is God's word. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. Well, as many of you know, we are currently in a series entitled Newness of Life. And in this series, we've been working through Romans chapter 6 through 8. And in these chapters, we have been considering what Paul has to say about our lives as Christians. That is, who we are in Christ and the process by which we become more and more like Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we concluded our study in Romans chapter 7. But I want us to do something a little bit different this Easter Sunday. We've been working through verse by verse through these chapters. But this Easter Sunday, I want us actually to take a step back and to look at Romans chapters 1 through 7 kind of as a whole and trace the theme of resurrection up to this point in Paul's letter to the Roman church. In doing so, I believe we will see how foundational the resurrection is to Paul's understanding of the gospel and the Christian life. Now, as we do this this morning, and as we look at each one of these texts, I want us also to remember, and this is important, we need to remember this morning how remarkable it is that as we're reading through Romans chapters 1 through 7, that it is Paul who is writing this material. It is Paul who is asserting and defending and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. You know, in Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus, he records in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, we read it this morning, and when they saw him, that is Jesus, having been raised from the dead, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I don't know if you caught that when we read through Matthew chapter 28 this morning. That's always stood out to me. Here the resurrected Christ is standing before the disciples and some doubted. Now some of you here this morning may have your doubts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see from Matthew's account that the early disciples did. They did not believe the resurrection of Jesus on a hunch. It was, in fact, only after evidence and reflection that they became absolutely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, as for Paul, so we're in Romans, right? And Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome. As for Paul, not only did Paul, before his conversion, doubt the resurrection of Jesus... 
He was vehemently denied it. He denounced it. In fact, we know that Paul actively pursued and persecuted and imprisoned and killed those who proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus. And then Paul was confronted by the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus, and he was never the same. The most vehement denouncer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ became its most ardent defender. And listen, my friends, Paul, Paul was highly educated. He was a well-to-do religious leader in Judaism. For Paul to become a defender of the resurrection of Jesus, humanly speaking, there was nothing for him to gain and everything for him to lose. And yet, what we see in the Apostle Paul's life is he relinquishes everything. All his wealth, all his status, all his position, his comfort, his safety, even ultimately his life in order to defend and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen, my friends, if Paul was making all of this up, don't you think that we, he would have renounced this dishonest fantasy somewhere along the way? Perhaps when he was repeatedly imprisoned. Or maybe when he endured countless beatings. Or perhaps when on five separate occasions he received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. And it was 39 lashes and not 40 because it was believed that that is as far as you could bring a man before he would die. You bring him to the brink of death with 39 lashes. 40 might kill him. Or when on three separate occasions he was beaten with rods. Or when he was stoned. And I feel like given our cultural moment, I just need to make it clear. That doesn't mean he got high. He wasn't smoking pot. People threw literal stones at him until they believed he was dead and left him for dead. Or perhaps when he was finally led to the place where he would be martyred, don't you think at some point along the way he would have renounced this, fant this fantasy? But he did not. He never renounced his claim that he had saw the resurrected Lord and he had heard his very voice. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a particular professor that had a lot of influence on me and group of students, we oftentimes would eat lunch with him, and one time we were discussing some of the reasons why it is reasonable and sound to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the claims of Christianity. And as we were having that discussion, one of the things he said was, you know, having read and studied the Apostle Paul for years, I just don't believe that Paul is an, apost an imposter. He just doesn't strike me as an imposter. I believe his testimony. And that resonated with me. So my friends, listen. I hope it resonates with you. Because this morning as we work through this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, we need to remember that it is Paul who was once Saul who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, who is writing and defending and proclaiming 
the resurrection of Jesus at great cost to himself. With that in mind, I want us to see four things regarding the resurrection in these chapters. First, we'll consider the resurrection in Jesus' identity. Secondly, the resurrection and saving faith. Third, the resurrection in our justification. And fourth, the resurrection in our sanctification. First of all, the resurrection and Jesus' identity. Look at Romans chapter 1. So flip back to chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. And we read these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's worth noting that as Paul opens his letter to the church in Rome, he opens by announcing the resurrection of Jesus. On Friday night, we gathered together to reflect upon, to remember the death of Jesus. And you might recall that as we read through the story, the account of Jesus' trial and death, you might recall that moment when Jesus stood on trial before the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus claimed to be the Son of the Blessed One. Now, the Blessed One is God. In other words, He claimed to be the Son of God. And in that moment, as Jesus stood before this powerful religious body, that claim must have seemed absolutely preposterous. As Jesus there, helpless in his humanity, stands before this powerful religious body just moments before his public execution. But as Paul states here in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus validates the claims of Jesus. The resurrection in this sense can be heard as a resounding yes, yes, Jesus is not a blasphemer. Jesus is not a crazy man. Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. Sam Albury states it this way, quote, an empty tomb reminds us why we need to take Jesus seriously. His resurrection has powerfully declared Jesus to be the Son of God. It shouts his credentials at us. End of quote. You see, my friends, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, we must obey him. If Jesus rose from the dead then what this means is it doesn't matter whether or not we like his teachings. It doesn't matter whether or not our family and friends approve of his teachings. It doesn't matter whether or not his teachings align with our perception of the world. If he rose from the dead, then he is who he said he was, and his teachings are true, all of them. You know, some things in this life are true, whether we like it or not. For example, gravity. You may not like it, 
But we have to deal with it, right? And accept it. Years ago, there was a really popular song entitled, I Believe I Can Fly. You know that song, right? I believe I can fly, I can touch the sky, think about it every night and day, spread my wings and fly away. Now, I assume that the author of that song is speaking figuratively, but if we take him literally, it's a nice thought, but it's absolutely untrue, right? It doesn't matter how much we think about it, how much we imagine it, how much we hope for it to be true. We cannot touch the sky and sprout wings and fly away because of the reality of gravity. And such is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is Lord whether we like it or not, whether it suits us or not, even whether we believe it or not. If Jesus rose from the dead, then the only thing left for us to do is to trust him and to bend the knee. Do you see how Paul makes that point in our text? Verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Here it is, Jesus Christ our Lord. If Jesus was raised from the dead, what Paul is saying here is everything he said about himself was true. If he truly did finally conquer death and sin forever, he is in fact Lord. And we must submit to him and follow him. Second, so first the resurrection and Jesus' identity. Second, the resurrection and saving faith. The resurrection and saving faith. Look at Romans chapter 4. So turn just a few chapters forward. Romans chapter 4. Verses 17 to 25. Now here, Paul is discussing Abraham. The life of Abraham. And notice in verse 17 he says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It, was, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Now, what we see in Romans chapter 4 is Paul is presenting Abraham to us as an example of saving faith. And do you remember the story of Abraham? God promised Abraham a son, and God said that through this son, his promise to bless the entire world would be realized. But there was a problem, and you see the problem in the text, right? God promises his son to Abraham, but when the promise came to Abraham, look there in verse 19... Abraham was a very old man. In fact, Paul says his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. 
And there's another problem. Not just that Abraham is an old man, but notice there, Abraham's wife was barren. In verse 19, Paul also speaks of the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So we could say that Sarah had a barren womb, or you could even say she had a dead womb because no life would be coming from her womb. And so what is it? This promise comes to Abraham, and what is it that Abraham believes? Now we could say, well, Abraham believed in God. And of course that's true. But what specifically did he believe about God? What did he believe concerning who God was? You see it there in verse 17. Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, Abraham believed in a God of life and a God of resurrection, a God who raises the dead and a God who creates life where there is no life. And it's interesting because God does fulfill His promise to Abraham. He gives life where there is no life. He gives a son, Isaac, where there was a barren womb. And Sarah gives birth to this son, the promised son. But then at the end of Abraham's life, Abraham is faced with another test. This time, the test is not related to the birth of Isaac, but it's related to the potential death of Isaac, the promised son. Do you remember the account? God tells Abraham to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah, and he calls Abraham to sacrifice his only beloved, promised son. Abraham obeys. But as Abraham raises the knife to slay his own son, God intervenes and tells Abraham to stop, to spare Isaac, and he provides a ram as a substitute for sacrifice. Now, my friends, we think about that account. We can't imagine what Abraham must have gone through when God gave him this command. And we ask ourselves, how did Abraham bring himself to the point where he was willing to obey God and to sacrifice his only son? And the author of Hebrews tells us how Abraham got there. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, how did he do that? The author of Hebrews says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham believed the promise, and he so believed the promise that God was going to bless the nations through this son that he was willing to lay his son down and sacrifice him because he believed if God does in fact call me to sacrifice my son, he is able to raise him from the dead so that the promise is realized. So both at the beginning of Abraham's spiritual pilgrimage and at the end of Abraham's spiritual journey, we see that Abraham possessed faith, and not just any faith, 
but he possessed resurrection faith. He believed not just in God, but he believed in the God who raises the dead, who gives life where there is no life. And Paul says, Abraham is an example to us of what it means to know God through saving faith. Do you see the connection? Look there in verses 22 to 24. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So do you see the, do you see the connection? Abraham was given a promise And what was required of Abraham to receive this promise? He must believe that God raises the dead, that God gives life where there is no life. And what does the gospel call us to believe, my friends? The gospel calls us to believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. The gospel calls us to possess resurrection faith. Faith in the resurrected Christ. And this is the only faith that saves. So we see the resurrection in Jesus' identity. We see in chapter 4 the resurrection and saving faith. Now notice, I want us to stay here in chapter 4 for just a moment more, a bit longer, and we see the resurrection and our justification. So look there in verse 25. We looked at verses 17 through 24, but now look at the very last verse In chapter 4, verse 25, and it says, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and notice this, and raised for our justification. Now, what does Paul mean by that? That Jesus was raised for our justification. Well, my friends, there was no better way for God to affirm his satisfaction with Jesus' work of redemption than resurrection. Now think about this. What is the final, ultimate consequence for our sins? It is death. We could say then, which leads to eternal separation from God and hell. But in this life, the final, ultimate consequence of sin is death. Paul states it this way. We saw this in our series in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. So before sin entered into the world, there was no death. Death, in that sense, is unnatural. So when someone close to you dies, it seems wrong, right? And in a very real sense, it is. We were not created originally to die. Death is an enemy. It is unnatural. So listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just some random, arbitrary display of God's power. It is a miraculous event and demonstration of God's power as it relates to our very specific need for redemption. In raising Jesus from the dead, God is declaring that the sin Jesus died for has been paid in full. Because death is the result of sin. 
it was sin that killed Jesus, right? So our sin was transferred to him at the cross, and he died. He took the penalty for our sin, and having taken that penalty and suffered the full and complete penalty for sin, there was no more penalty to be paid. There was no more death to be endured. Once he pays the sin in full and completely, there is no sin that can hold him in the grave. It's all been paid. And so he's released from the grave to know life everlasting. In this way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares that Christ's payment for our sin was full and complete and it satisfied justice. So, when Jesus dies on the cross, he declares, it is finished. And what Jesus is saying is, I have paid the penalty. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God declares, it is enough. Full atonement. Sin and death have been defeated. Tim Keller states it this way, quote, The resurrection is a giant receipt stamped across history saying your debt has been paid for and you don't have to pay it ever again, end of quote. Third, I'm sorry, fourth, the resurrection in our sanctification. So we've considered the resurrection in Jesus' identity, the resurrection in saving faith, the resurrection in our justification, and then fourth, the resurrection and our sanctification. And this brings us to our current series in Romans chapters 6 through 8. And in particular, we're going to look here at chapters 6 and 7. Now, in Romans chapter 6 through 8, what Paul is talking about here is sanctification. And what it means to sanctify is to make holy. It means to set apart. So sanctification refers to the process by which we are made holy as Christians, by which we are set apart for God, by which we grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus. And so that's what we've been considering as we've been working through Romans 6 through 8. Now, as Paul addresses the subject of sanctification, in Romans chapter 6, we see that Paul is full of hope and optimism and victory. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul declares that through faith, we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and as a result, we can experience victory over sin. So, so let, me, let me show this to you. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, you see that Paul reminds us that our baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. So in chapter 6, verse 4, he says we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, Paul teaches us that by virtue of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we can and should expect to make progress in our Christian lives. So Romans 6, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we can say that the culmination or the climax of this section occurs in verse 14, in which Paul declares in chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now all this to say, Romans 6 is full of hope and optimism and victory. Reflecting on Romans chapter 6 and other passages like it, one commentator has, in, has concluded, quote, Believers experience substantial, significant, and observable victory over sin, and yet perfection is not theirs. End of quote. So Romans 6 captures that as believers, if we look at the long trajectory of our lives, we should experience substantial, significant, an observable victory over sin. In other words, we should make progress in our Christian lives by virtue of our union with Christ. And so Paul is capturing that in Romans 6. Now in Romans 7, Paul captures, and yet perfection is not theirs. So if victory is the resounding note in Romans chapter 6, we might say that struggle is the resounding note in Romans chapter 7. And Paul captures this struggle. Look there in chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Paul writes these words. Chapter 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And every Christian knows this experience, right? Every Christian knows what it is to struggle and battle with sin at some point. It could be an ongoing battle with sexual immorality or pornography. It could be a battle with bitterness and unforgiveness. It could be an ongoing struggle with pettiness and divisiveness. Or with disobedience and disrespect. Or with lying and dishonesty. Or with alcohol and drugs. Or with greed and jealousy. Or with sinful anger and cursing. And although we are united to Christ by faith, although the dominion of sin has been broken in our lives, although we possess the very Spirit of God, there are times where it seems that sin has the best of us, that perhaps sin has us on the ropes. And what is Paul's response? Look there in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice here, Paul is seeking deliverance. But he is seeking deliverance from something very specific. 
Do you notice it there? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, and here it is, from this body of death? Why, why does Paul say he wants deliverance from this body of death? Like, what, what's going on there? Well, my friends, this has been a theme throughout Romans chapter 6 and 7. Let me just show it to you here briefly. Go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, and we read these words. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order, here it is, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or look at verse 12 in chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign, here it is, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then Paul picks up all this language of members. And presumably he's referring to the members of our body. So look at chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, the members of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. And then as he closes out Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin results in death, which obviously includes physical death. The death of the body. The death of the mortal body. And now we come to Romans chapter 7, and the verses we're looking at specifically here, now. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, Paul picks up this theme again. Do you see it there? He says, but I see in my members, as the members of my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then verse 24. Now this sets us up for verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, as I've stated before in our study in Romans chapter 6 through 8, Paul is not teaching that the body in and of itself is evil. God created the physical universe. He created all that is physical, including our bodies. And he declared it all to be good. And we could even say he declared especially our bodies to be good because humanity was the crown of his creation. It's not that our bodies are inherently evil, but rather what Paul, I believe, is teaching us here is that sin uses our bodies as the vehicle through which it expresses its rebellion against God. Sin uses our bodies as the vehicle through which it ex expresses its rebellion against God. So, as we see here in verse 24, sin wages war against our mind, which is part of our body. Or we could say, sin slanders with our tongue. Sin steals with our hands. Sin lusts with our eyes. Sin chases after evil with our feet. You get the idea. The body has been corrupted by sin, and the body is cursed by sin. 
This means that sin has corrupted the body and expresses its rebellion against God through the body, and it means that sin has cursed the body so that the body will ultimately experience physical death. And so Paul cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of sin, from this body of death? And notice the solution. And part of the solution is actually in the question. Who will deliver? It's in the future tense. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, it seems that most scholars agree that Paul has in mind here not just a deliverance in the present, in the now, but a future, ultimate deliverance. Who will deliver me from this body of death. And who can do that? You see the answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus can deliver me. Jesus will deliver me. And how can Jesus do that? You know the answer by now, right? Resurrection. That's how he will deliver me from this body of death. He's been raised from the dead. And I've been united to him in his resurrection. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, so one day our corrupted, cursed bodies will be delivered and will be transformed into new resurrected bodies like the resurrected body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in that moment, we will be free to sin no more. In fact, Paul goes on to celebrate this reality in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8 verse 11, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And in Romans 8:23 he says and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Now you might say yeah but Paul here is talking about sanctification. Paul is talking about the battle and the struggle with sin. And I'm dealing with that now. This is good news. But what about the struggle I'm dealing with now? How does this, he will deliver me in the future, but how does that help me now? And I have two words for you. Reliance and hope. Reliance. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is struck fleshing out this struggle, this battle with sin. He he records it in verses 14 through 23. But then as as he's explaining this struggle and battle with sin, what does Paul do? Notice there in verse 24, Paul looks away from himself and he looks to Jesus. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, if, if Paul keeps looking in here, if he keeps looking in here, he's not going to find hope, right? He's only going to find misery. So Paul is forced to look outside of himself and to look to Jesus. And what does he find in Jesus? In Jesus, he finds a God who raises the dead. 
And that resurrection life is ours now so that we can walk in newness of life and ultimately will result in our full redemption so that we experience resurrection life in all its fullness for all eternity. So here's the principle. The struggle of the Christian life is designed to cause you to rely on God who raises the dead. Let me say that again. The struggle of the Christian life, the ongoing battle and struggle with sin is designed by God to cause you to rely on God who raises the dead. Do you remember Abraham at the beginning of his spiritual pilgrimage and at the end of his spiritual journey? What was Abraham doing? His circumstances, the circumstances of his life compelled him to look outside of himself and to trust in a God who raises the dead, who brings life where there is no life. And my friends, that's the Christian life. That is the Christian life. Faith in in the resurrection of Jesus is not just a one-time act. Sometimes we might misunderstand this. We might think, well, it's Easter Sunday. I mean, I've done that. You know, when I became a Christian, I believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And so as a result, I know that I'm forgiven of my sins, but now the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have any real functional, practical reality in my life. No, my friends. The Christian life is ongoing, daily faith in and reliance upon the God who raises the dead. This is how we grow as Christians. That's why Paul is saying, you died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, so that as you look to Him and trust in Him, you might walk in newness of life. And this is the way Paul lived the Christian life. Listen, just one example, and then we're going to move on to hope. So this is reliance, and then we'll move on to hope. One example, though, of this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. to 10. Let me read this for you quickly. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. So Romans 7 is teaching us that the ongoing battle with struggle and struggle with sin is intended, designed, so that we might rely on God who raises the dead. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is teaching us that the particular circumstances and trials of our lives are designed in such a way that it would compel us, force us, to rely on God who raises the dead. So as Paul describes this struggle and this hope, he is illustrating for us the need for us to rely on the resurrection power of God. Second, hope. That's the second word. Now here the principle is that the assurance of future resurrection and deliverance sustains us and gives us strength for today's battles. 
the assurance of future resurrection and deliverance sustains us and gives us strength for today's battles. Look there again in verse 24 and 25. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So there's the struggle, there's the battle, even dare we say the despair. And then in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's hope, here's assurance. Now notice what happens next. So then, again in verse 25, So then... And here's the acknowledgement of the ongoing struggle. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, notice what's happening here. It's as though Paul, having been assured of future deliverance and victory, now Paul can once again, in verse 25, so, so he asks, he's struggling, right? I want you to get this. He's struggling. Who will deliver me, right? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now he has hope, he has assurance. And what does he do having that hope and assurance? Now he turns in verse 25 and he can face the struggle again. And he can keep going. So then, I myself with my mind serve the law of God, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the deliverance that is to come that gives him the grace to now turn to the reality of the battle and the struggle and to engage once again and to keep fighting and to move forward. It's been said that those who endured the Soviet labor camps in the mid-20th century, that they have shared that there were really only two types of people in those horrific labor camps. There were those who had hope, and there were those who did not. And they testified that that was the difference between those who could keep on going and those who could not. You see, my friends, without hope, we will despair. Without hope, we're paralyzed. Without hope, we're defeated. But with hope, He will deliver me from this body of sin and death. With hope, we can keep on going. We could say it this way. June 6, 1944 is one of the most important dates in American history, really one of the most important dates in world history. It is June 6, 1944 marks D-Day. It was the day in World War II when 160,000 Allied soldiers landed on the coast of France, which was occupied by Nazi Germany. And at that time, this operation was the biggest air, land, and sea invasion that had ever been executed. And D-Day, as you know, was the decisive turning point in World War II. But V-Day, or Victory Day, did not come until almost a full year later, on May 8, 1945. This was the day that the, the Allied forces celebrated the unconditional surrender of Nazi forces and celebrations broke out all over Europe. Now listen, my friends, here, here's the point. As Christians, we are living between D-Day and V-Day. On D-Day, which marks 
the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a decisive victory was won. Jesus in his death and resurrection conquered sin and death and hell. But now, as we still battle and as we still struggle and as we still fight, we await the day when we will finally be rid of sin and death and hell forever and we will enjoy an eternal celebration of God's grace in a new heavens and a new earth forever. But my friends, as we fight, as we struggle, as we battle on with our own flesh, we know and are convinced that the tide has turned, that victory has been secured. And so with every struggle and with every battle, our hope, with every battle won, our hope and our confidence should increase, should grow, because we know that V-Day is certain. The hope, the certainty, the assurance of what is to come, in fact, enables us to continue to fight. This is why Paul is able to continue with confidence and grace and faith to engage in this battle and to experience victory after victory in the midst of the struggle because he knows that ultimate victory is secure. So the resurrection in Jesus' identity, the resurrection in saving faith, the resurrection in our justification, and the resurrection in our sanctification. Finally, if you're here with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. But there's a final category I want us to consider, and that is the resurrection in you. Do you believe the testimony of the Apostle Paul? Do you believe the testimony of Holy Scripture regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Having heard the message of Jesus' resurrection, God now extends through the Apostle Paul this invitation to you. It's found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the grace of God, may you trust in the risen Christ this morning, and may you bow the knee and know him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your grace you would help us to see the significance and the glory of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that it wouldn't just be something that we believed in years ago when we first became Christians, but it would have a functional reality in our lives so that daily we are looking to you, the God who raises the dead, and trusting in the resurrection power of Jesus that is now ours through faith in him. Lord, we pray that by faith in the resurrected Christ, we would know victory in this life. In the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of trials and difficulties, 
Lord, we pray that we would know you, the God who raises the dead. And we would know life. We would know victory. So Lord, take your word now and we pray that you would apply it to our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.